You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at CR's Northern Command in Maryland under Westwood One Podcast Network. Proud to be associated with both of them here on Friday, June 8th. And I am proud of Fridays. I love Fridays. Friday is my favorite day, especially after a week like this where it was just one of these weeks I felt like leaving this business um, with the Republican Party now becoming the party of crime, the party of open borders. Uh, And also, I'm just so exhausted. Every day I go down to D.C., Thursday was a D.C. day for me. Um, Met with some good patriots to plot our our strategy on our safety and security agenda. Um, By the way, Andy Biggs, congressman from Arizona, real stud there. Um, He... I came in, and he had my book marked up with notes, and he made his staff read it. He's a really good guy. Uh, He is very interested in judicial reform, um, jurisdiction stripping, impeaching rogue judges. So he is a guy we are going to definitely have on the show in the coming days. Now, the last couple of weeks, really last month, we've been focusing on the nexus between properly diagnosing the character and the source of the drug crisis, the significance of drug laws, not in the way people think about them in terms of like domestic nanny state, uh, social behavior. Well, you know, why do the feds regulate this, but not alcohol? Why is alcohol left to the states? No, no, no. There's a much bigger thing going on here. This is the nexus of open borders, immigration, broad crime problems, and more importantly, international terrorism and terror financing, and that if you properly addressed sovereignty, immigration, and went after drug networks, you would totally solve so much of the terrorism problem and would save so much money on just these endless you know, chasing our tail operations overseas, refereeing Islamic civil war. So, we, you know, we've really tied in immigration, crime, drugs, terrorism, and foreign policy and how to get this right. And, you know, one of the things that it has really been probably one of the best parts of what I do for a living is while doing research and trying to find the truth about issues and focus on substance, to meet people across the country maybe involved in government at some point, maybe never involved, they actually know what they're talking about, have great experience, great ideas and insights into some of these issues. And you won't really hear from them much in the mainstream media, even the mainstream conservative media, but they've really helped me in my thinking. And one of my newest friends I've really learned a lot from and really excited to have on today is Derek Maltz. He served for 28 years in the Drug Enforcement Administration, lots of law enforcement background there. And most significantly, he was a special agent in charge of DEA's Special Operations Division from 2005 to 2014, very critical transition period. He was integral in helping national and international law enforcement better coordinate together to catch transnational crime leaders, terrorists, 
Lots of good insight on Terra financing his bell in America. We're going to try to cover all that. Under his leadership, DA established the Counter-Narco-Terrorism Operations Center. So we're going to really discuss drugs in a way that you probably didn't think about. And if you're libertarian-leaning, I want you to hear this to see a different angle, a different perspective that you probably haven't heard. Well, Derek, are you on the line? Yes, Daniel. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly uh, ready to hang it up for the week, but really excited all week. I've, I've been telling even some of my friends in Congress, yeah, I'm having the, the guy who headed the DA Special Operations Division on my show. We're going to discuss some of these issues we're talking about. I, I just want, I don't even know where to start, but let's start with the fact that I'm intrigued that you were in charge of this division from 2005 to 2014, something very significant happened between when you started out and when you were retiring. And that is, we always had a baseline drug problem in America. Um, you know, uh, contrary to what the media says, it was not brought on in the late 90s by OxyContin. According to the Congressional Research Service, drug cartels were operating this country since the 1940s. Now, as long as there's a culture for it, and that culture, unfortunately, is getting worse, um, and we allow in, you know, open borders, they're going to get to it, and they're going to, you know, provide access. But something bonkers happened starting around 2013, 2014, and accelerating in 2015, 2016 to the present, where not just illicit opioids like heroin and fentanyl, but cocaine and meth are tripling. Uh, what is going on, and where is this coming from? Just you know, What do you see towards the tail end of your career? Well, first of all, Daniel, I mean, this isn't anything new, but what is new is the fact that these these entrepreneur drug trafficking groups like in Colombia and Mexico with the cartels, they are completely taking advantage of the user population and they're using their savvy business minds to undercut the markets and make gazillions of dollars out there uh, killing our, our children and our, and our communities all over the country. So, so yes, in 2011, 2012, 2013, we started seeing like just people dropping dead all over the country because they were now starting to use this heroin that contained opioid, uh, synthetic opioids uh, like fentanyl at a very, very high purity. And they were dropping dead. They were taking pills. They go to parties and the kids talk about taking a Xanax pill or taking Adderall to stay awake, to study at college. Next thing you know, the parents are finding them dead. Uh, by their bedside, and nobody understands what's going on. Well, what's going on is these Colombian and Mexican drug traffickers are taking advantage of the demand that was created uh, for years by the abuse of the opioid, uh, you know, over over prescribing and lack of Department of Justice aggressive prosecutions against these manufacturers and distribution companies. So it's so- like the perfect storm that's been created, and now. We have your typical drug trafficking organization making billions of dollars as our communities are being destroyed. Yep, and you know what? What I find fascinating, um, and I'm going to have an article out on this today. It's it's unbelievable. You know, a lot of my libertarian friends will tell me, "What the heck? You know, this should be no different than alcohol. Should be regulated on a state level." Why are the feds involved? Because again, they look at it in terms of you know a domestic policy item. 
And today is Foreign Policy Friday, by the way, for the conservative conscience. We usually have Jordan Schachtel on. But you know, today I want to discuss this really does tie into foreign policy um, because unlike other th- social ills in this country that are more inherent, now the demand is inherent, but when it comes to drugs, isn't this pr- at a primary level – it's almost all coming from Mexico. It's almost all associated with transnational crime organizations, and it finances terrorism. So isn't this very different than, say, regulating other products at a state level? Well, absolutely. I mean, look, let's look at the evolution of Hezbollah's involvement in drug trafficking. I mean, we can't forget many years ago when all our Marines were blown up in the barracks in Lebanon. Uh, but we also have to remember that They are also uh, global entrepreneurs in the sense of coming up with schemes and criminal activities around the world to make money. Well, as terrorists need more money to operate, they actually are tapping into the criminal activities like drug trafficking and counterfeiting and human smuggling and prostitution and, you know, all kinds of other crimes, illegal cigarette trafficking. But Hezbollah is, according to the Obama administration, if you want to go back in time, one of the most sophisticated, uh, complex terrorist organizations in the world. And they're operating all over the place, and they're using businesses in our country, okay, in their trade-based money laundering schemes to benefit from the drug trafficking, uh, uh, you know, around the world. And what's happening is it's, it's very, very complex because you have systems in our country that are obsolete, like our laws are very obsolete, especially in the technology area. And you have a situation where it's very difficult to deal with this, right? So historically, when you look at terrorists, right, we've always had like a cocoon around our terrorist investigators, okay? Our intelligence community and folks that are working really, really hard out there to prevent terrorism have always had a problem with sharing that highly classified sensitive information with our good old state and, state and local offices and our federal agencies working crime. Unfortunately, it's all connected in our country. So we have these terror finance schemes that are all over America and monies are going back to the Middle East to fund these terrorist agendas, which are very expensive. You know, for you know, one of the things, Daniel, that people don't recognize is that one of the most important components of international transnational organized crime is the corruption aspects. And if you're going to work in a certain country, you're going to be paying off those military and corrupt government officials. And they're not going to take your Visa and MasterCard. They want cash. And when they see how drugs, for an example, are generating $400 billion a year around the world, this is an unbelievable resource, right? And it's cash, right? So it's easy. But what's happened is we, we've, we haven't paid attention to this. As a taxpayer now with three kids and a wife and everything, I worry because this was warning. There was warnings for years. Like, for an example, Michael Chertoff, our Homeland Security director in 2008, said that Hezbollah made al-Qaeda look like the minor leagues. If you look at yep. some of the other military leaders that, that ran our Southern Command, like, like General Kelly and, and Admiral Stavridis, they warned about the massive movement of these these uh, Middle Eastern folks going into the South America, Central America, building up their their worldwide uh, business networks. And now they're involved in all these crimes and they're right here in the Western Hemisphere. You know, look at the 2012, you know, Quds Forces plan 
okay, to go after and blow up people in Washington, D.C. and blow up embassies, right? Thank God our system worked and we prosecuted the guys involved down in Texas. But but this was like everyone saying, how the hell are they here in America? Like, how did how could this happen where the Iranians cut forces are going to plot something in the Western Hemisphere? Well, they've been here and they've been building up the infrastructure as we're debating this back and forth in the Beltway. So, so it's like enough is enough. So, Derek, I, I want to steer this. You laid a good foundation there for Hezbollah in the Western Hemisphere. We did a whole show with our mutual friend, Joseph Humeyer, a couple weeks ago um, on the threat, on the significance of the presence of Iran and Hezbollah in Latin America. But could you talk from your experience and what you dealt with um, in America itself? In America itself, the circuitous operation of terror financing drugs, particularly cocaine, Hezbollah. Talk a little bit about what you could see on satellites in West Africa and their operation and how that goes into Europe and finance and how our own country is helping to finance the mother's milk of, of Hezbollah's war effort. Okay, so let me let me give you a little bit of a, uh, a timeline here. So when I took over the SOD operation in 2005, you know, we started seeing a lot of uh, like Arabic uh, subjects in Colombia that were involved in brokering, you know, large scale money pickups and, uh, you know, drug activities uh, in Cartagena, Colombia specifically. And we really or I didn't really know what this was. Like, I had no idea. I'll be honest with you. You know, when, when we get promoted to these jobs in government, we don't have all the answers. We, we learn. Right. And then it, I had a flashback because when I was the uh, supervisor in the New York Drug Enforcement Task Force, there was a big money operation in New York. And we had some, you know, Arabic guys involved in this operation. And I didn't really understand what their role was. Long story short, we started seeing like ton quantities of cocaine that were leaving South America, going into West Africa, uh, being distributed around the world. And people say, well, why do we care? Like, what? why does that matter? Well, it matters because... Because what's happened is these drug traffickers recognize that the business opportunity to sell a kilo of cocaine, let's say in Australia for $300,000, is a lot more, um, you know, attractive than selling cocaine in America for $30,000, let us say. But the other thing is they've recognized that the U.S. government has done a great job over the years extraditing these kingpins so they don't want to go to jail. So from a business uh, opportunity, it's more money, less risk. So it's a no-brainer. So they send the cocaine over there into West Africa, it gets distributed around the world, monies get collected, brought back into West Africa. Middle Eastern couriers get on flights, go into Beirut, Lebanon. When the monies were going in Beirut, Lebanon, it was all controlled by Hezbollah militants. And then monies were going into the exchange houses and then actually winding up in banks in Lebanon. Now, here's where it's a really significant problem. Then they're routing literally hundreds of millions of dollars, probably over a billion dollars, back into U.S. corresponding bank accounts. And the monies then are being used to buy cars in America to be shipped on Hezbollah-controlled shipping lines back to West Africa to sell the cars for a 20 to 25 percent profit. This is what we call an accelerated trade-based money laundering scheme. But what's really problematic is if you go back to the war with Israel in 2006, and we looked at some photographs of the shorelines in West Africa. There was nothing there. Once they started this scheme, the, 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 the photographs depicted just 
thousands and thousands of automobiles in these car parks. And now, according to like some insight I have from my friends in the Department of Homeland Security, the exports of cars is booming in America and not just in America, but in Europe to West Africa. So this scheme is obviously very successful and they're making it all on the backs of international drug trafficking, cocaine trafficking. So what what really bothers me, Daniel, is that we did a good job in the, in the U.S., you know, collectively, especially with our friends from Treasury and CBP uh, and, and uh, of course, certain contractors, but the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. And we came together with an unprecedented Patriot Act 311 action against the Lebanese Canadian Bank. The problem is we couldn't get the U.S. government agencies all to cooperate to make this a much more powerful action. So we hit the, we hit 30 businesses and we hit, um, you know, uh, we did a $480 million civil judgment. We ultimately seized $150 million out of another bank in, in Lebanon. The problem is, is we had hundreds of businesses operating, but we didn't attack all 100. It, we, it, we couldn't get our act together. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When you, you're talking about businesses in the abstract, like businesses operating here. Who used are they? Car Who are they? They're Middle Eastern run used car businesses all over the United States. Now, Daniel, when somebody says to me, like, why, why does that really get you so passionate? Well, because I know how, you know, you read in the news about the disturbance between Iran and the conflicts with the weapons of mass destruction and Israel. Suppose tomorrow they go to war. Well, all these folks are here in America. We don't know what they're going to do. They're already physically here, established business owners. Now, I don't have evidence that they're going to be like, quote unquote, sleeper cells. But you never know because they're already here and they're operating in our country. And nobody's paying attention to this and the severity of it. So this is a global transnational organized crime network that's that's making money on the sale of used cars right here in our country. And it's not just used cars. We can go on all day about these other different consumer goods that are being used in this whole global parafinance, you know, market. No, for sure. And, and I want to get into some of those examples. But first, again, where this came from, they didn't fly in on a magic carpet. Um, they didn't invade us with a Navy or an Air Force. What, what you seem to be describing is that terrorism at its core, if you want to prevent it, um, you go after its mother's milk, which is the money. It's not – now, we need a strong defense. We need a strong military for a conventional threat. But fundamentally, it's – you know what's going on in with the Houthis in Yemen and the Syrian civil war, and we have our troops involved in Afghanistan for, for 17, 18 years. But they didn't come here on a military. We bring them here through immigration. I know you saw this report. And I'm going to have an article out. I don't know if it's going to be in show notes, if it uh, if the article is going to be out in time. I hope to get it up today. But I'm going to have an article about 663,000 avoidable crimes in just one state of Texas over seven years. How DHS and DOG pers- DOJ, pursuant to Trump's one his first immigration executive order, where he wanted an accounting for the just the the prominence of of foreign nationals in our criminal justice system, certainly the federal system, and as much data as we can get from states, and it was astounding. If you look, obviously we know roughly thirty percent of the federal system, um, both the U.S. Marshals custody, BOP custody, uh, consist of foreign nationals. A lot of them illegal, but some of them legal immigrants. 
In Texas alone, from 2011 to 2018, 663,000 offenses were committed by 251,000 criminal aliens booked in Texas jails. And those are just the ones that are verified that at some point DHS apprehended them or has their fingerprints. You can imagine all the people that snuck in that DHS, you know, Border Patrol ICE never made contact with. So it's really much more than that. I look at First of all, 79,900 drug charges among them. That, that's where it's coming in. And, but then, you know, it gets worse. 79,000 assaults, um, 9,938 weapons charges, 7,156 sexual assaults, and even 1,351 homicides and 4,000 ro- robberies, 44,000 thefts. I, you know, I hope you're not, you know, don't take this the wrong way, but how does it make you feel that I know you lost a brother in Afghanistan, that we go to Afghanistan supposedly to make ourselves sa- safe, but we freaking let the problem in our country? Yeah, no, it's absolutely uh, a critical point. And, and by the way, in regards to my brother, it just makes me stronger and more passionate uh, because he died fighting for the country, which I'm very proud of him for that. But it just makes me way more passionate and focused. And that's why. In my opinion, when I was running the SOD operation, it grew from nine agencies to 30 because people recognized that it was about the mission, not about any individual agency, not about me personally, not about DEA. It was about public safety in America and around the world. But so let me go back and talk about those stats, because let me let me go back to what I think regular people in America can relate to. Of course, a lot of these statistics are always hidden from the public. You don't see that on mainstream media. But let me give you an example. So today I woke up to this very, very sad story of this Josh Wilkerson kid in Texas where the kid takes a friend home from school. Oh, yeah. He gets in the car. Long story short, he's giving him a ride home from school trying to help him. The kid beats him to death. He strangles him. He kicks him in the spleen so hard the spleen splits in two. Then he ties him up and he sets him on fire. Like, can you imagine? Like, this is somebody's kid. And this poor woman this morning, I God bless her and her family, and we pray for this kid, Josh. But this is happening all over America, and people just say, oh, it's not my kid. I don't, you know, that's a bunch of BS. No, it's not BS. It's people's lives being destroyed forever. And so this is when you got to look in, like, look, Daniel, statistics are statistics, right? People use them in a variety of ways. But let's start getting the real stories. And i got to tell you, I am also very impressed with what I saw this morning that finally we're going to be pushing out these ads to American kids and the public about the opioid crisis. And we're going to be using real stories of real families and real kids that have suffered and that have survived this crisis. But I love that stuff because that's what's been lacking all of these years. We got way too complacent. It was always like, well, it's not my kid. You know, I don't care. My kid's, you know, an honor student, an athlete. He's not going to get involved with drugs. That's a bunch of BS because we have good families that are being destroyed every day because some kid, you know, inadvertently took a pill. The bottom line is like, you got to look into these stats a little bit further, right? And then also you got to look at these these specific organizations, like you know this big scandal in the news about MS13 and President Trump calling them animals. Well, let me tell you this: when you look at their motto of kill, rape, and control, and then how they're using these machetes to slash these kids to death in the streets and chop off their limbs and you know put them you know a, you know on fire. 
And you look at this kind of stuff. Well, what do you want to call those kind of people? Who does that? Right. Those are animals because those are not human beings that do this stuff. And so the bottom line is you look at the crisis just going on with MS-13. They just killed to kill. That's part of the initiation. You want to be an MS-13 member? Go kill that little kid with his with his backpack going to school. So, again, these stats are one thing, but let's look at the actual events to figure out what's happening to our communities. Right. And then you have this mayor, you know, partying in his office over the sanctuary yep. city ruling. Like, yeah, the I don't understand mayor. that. Yeah, like, okay, so you're going to high-five and celebrate this ruling. But what about the crime in Philadelphia? What about these poor people that are homeless all over the place and there's needles on the ground and that they're, they're, they're actually urinating on the streets and they have these tent cities everywhere? Like, what are we doing about that? Like, it's really, really sad. And I got to tell you, I see it all the time. I I travel around the country, and everywhere I go, I'm seeing this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's all related. You know, the border, 90% of the drugs are crossing over the Mexican border, right? The southwest border is a disaster in regards to security. You have these cartels that are really, really smart, Sinaloa cartel, new generation Jalisco cartel. They're dumping the poison all over America. They're using their, you know, their produce uh, delivery truck. But, They're using cars, mules. No, for sure. Trains, but, 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 but Derek, so I, I want to go back to your sanctuary point. They're, they're dumping it. But then that would be bad enough, but you could bust that up, you know, because they, they get it in once, but then we could detect it. But there's a step further in the interior of the country, and this is what you dealt with at DEA, that they have to be able to sustain their network to distribute it in perpetuity without going uh, detected. And that's very difficult unless you have like this Philadelphia mayor, you know, um, during an operation last year, ICE arrested a 22-year-old male citizen of Gambia who was previously arrested by Philadelphia police for aggravated assault. Um, He assaulted his girlfriend, he attempted to rape her. Um, I'm seeing stories about another rapist um, who was a previously deported alien who kidnapped the 26-year-old woman in Philadelphia. Um, There was another case recently where a border agent arrested an illegal alien convict of murder in Philadelphia. So, you know, I, I think the point you're making, going back to Wilkerson also, I know Laura, um, I was on Hannity with her a couple of years ago. Uh, we we email back and forth sometimes. I mean, she's still very devastated from, from that, and rightfully so. And it, it's not that we don't have this to a certain extent in our country. I mean, we see with the school shootings, we have a cultural, we have our own problem with our own youth. But the difference is in redressability. This is this is redressable because you don't have to let them in. We shouldn't have open borders. And to the extent people get in or legally we let in the wrong people, they should be immediately deported. And it doesn't happen. So isn't drugs a good honeypot? Because given that, unlike other social ills in this country, that is primarily – Oh, well, exclusively from the outside and primarily distributed at a primary level by foreign nationals, if we just enforced sovereignty, wouldn't we dry this up? Not completely, but make it prohibitively expensive for your average 18-year-old to get a hold of for nine bucks. Right. If you look at, again, um, if you look at some of the statistics, and I don't have them handy, that the, the folks that are being arrested in some of these unbelievable, intense sustained operations that law enforcement has been doing over the years against Mexican cartels. A lot of those folks, the majority of them seem to be illegal aliens. 
And so when they get arrested, then this whole new, you know, group of people are coming through the borders, running through Arizona, California, Texas, and just going back to these cities and taking over the jobs of these other folks that were arrested. So, yeah, if you if you have them freely coming into our country, then then it's going to be very hard to stop because there's so much money to be made in the business. Right. If you look at just like, for example, with fentanyl, if you invest three thousand dollars in China for fentanyl and you bring it to a lab in Mexico and you start, you know, cutting it off and making it to like multiple kilos, you're making millions of dollars from your three to five thousand dollar investment. Right. And then if you look at what's really scary, Daniel, you look at it only takes like two milligrams to kill somebody. Right. So you look at this recent Nebraska seizure. 118 pounds of fentanyl. Nebraska State Police stopped a truck. And if you look, they estimated that could kill 26 million people because this fentanyl is so potent, right? So you have all these illegal aliens throughout the country that are taking advantage of the ability to be here. Oh, one other thing I wanted to tell you, because this was something I was very involved in years ago. You know this argument about spillover violence, and they talked about, well, we don't see spillover violence in America. Well, what they don't tell you in mainstream media is all of these savage deaths that we have seen in the DEA in these different communities, like electrocuting people at the earlobes with electrical cables or duct taping a guy in Detroit from head to toe and then lighting him on fire and then the guy bragging about it and how excited he was to burn him to a crisp, right? Or one time, I'll never forget, Daniel, we were doing a wiretap in in, uh, the West Coast and the guy says on the phone how he just killed some guy and he's going to bury him. And we went to the house in the minivan. The guy was shot in the head multiple times and, you know, wrapped up in a blanket to go to be buried. I mean, like, this is happening all over America, these home invasions. These innocent people are sitting at home, and these, these savages are coming in, knocking down the doors, trying to steal drugs and money. And sometimes they have the bad address, right? So, yeah, you hear about the cops that hit the bad door, you know, the wrong door by accident. But no one's talking about the illegal alien savages that are knocking down doors of innocent people and hurting and sometimes killing innocent people because they think there's a stash of drugs or money in the house. This is also happening all over America. That's an interesting turn, and I haven't thought of it in a while, spillover violence. Again, I find it funny. The media is so – and our government is so into the Middle East, and you know, there's certain things we need to keep an eye on. But 29,000 Mexicans died of homicide, and a lot of this is not – you know. You know, hundreds of miles deep in, it's literally a stone throws away from the border. Uh, El Paso, sister city, um, Ciudad Juarez, um, the uh, Ciudad Laredo, uh, across from Laredo, across the river. I mean, it, it's right over there, and somehow that's just not sexy to the media. Hey, Daniel, you want to hear something like kind of sad? Back in the day, a few years ago, when this was a popular topic of discussion, they were talking about how El Paso is one of the safest cities in America. <laughs> and people were like, well, it's right on the border. How's that possible? You, you know why? Because they were, they were kidnapping people in El Paso, bringing them to Mexico and chopping them up. So, like, oh you know, these are, the things you, yeah, these are the things that you don't hear. Oh, and by the way, I mean, if the public could see the type of violence that is in Mexico, like the heads on the fence posts, rolling heads on the dance floor at weddings, uh, actually chopping up young prosecutors with chainsaws, throwing people in pots of acid. You know, they, they, they dig holes and then they throw people in acid. So 
the family never even recovers any remains because they dissolve them in acid. And so they throw limbs up in the trees, in the woods. I mean, I have a lot of these photos I've seen over the years, yeah. and it's like violence worse than Afghanistan, Iraq, anywhere in the world, but it's happening right there in Mexico, and we just kind of downplay it like this isn't that big of a deal. And, and it's all really encouraged, sick. and the entire economy, atmosphere, and climate is created by the incentive of <laughs> meaning. Rather than focus on what you're talking about as the number one issue in Congress now, the number one issue is what they call DACA, which is the foremost magnet that creates the atmosphere and economy for to have the cross-border violence to service this and use it as a diversion for all sorts of stuff. And all, all the you know it it encourages all the people to come, and that puts all the money from the smugglers who who uh, pay the drug cartels into their pockets. And, and again, it's like, you know, we have our military in Afghanistan, but we don't talk about this side, which brings me to, gosh, I have so many more things I wanted to get to. Um, w- one question I've asked other guests before, and I want to get your take on this, someone who worked um, in DA for so long. You know, again, a lot of people in this country uh, have, you know, they say, ah, the war on drugs doesn't work. War on drugs doesn't work. Um, and I actually agree that a war on an item, like, you know, if you had a war on guns, you know, you're not going to take the guns off the street. You're just going to take them away from the law-abiding people, but they'll they'll find a way to get them. Um, a war on an item doesn't work, but a real war does work. Why in your – in your estimation, what has worked and what hasn't worked and what should be should we be doing to make the DEA worthwhile in its existence? Okay, so – First of all, the DEA and not just the DEA, Homeland Security, FBI, ATF, U.S. Marshals, and all our state and local partners are out there every day dedicating their lives. They leave home. They don't go to soccer games and baseball matches and weddings because they dedicate themselves. And they don't make a lot of money to go out there and keep our country safe. And what happens is they actually do a pretty damn good job at synchronizing and cooperate when it comes to these drug cases. I'm specifically speaking about drugs and guns and like aliens and not terrorism at this point right so they cooperate they share and they do these law enforcement efforts they make significant seizures of drugs and weapons and a lot of people say well is it really worth it well every single kilo you take off the street is saving somebody's life like i said in the nebraska case alone that's 26 million people that could have been killed from this fentanyl that they seize and that's just one example but law enforcement is paid to enforce the law That's their job. Law enforcement is not getting huge resources for this demand reduction, education, prevention, and all of the other key elements that are needed to go after this crisis. Now, honestly, and not being political here, after 9-11, you know, obviously our country's focus was preventing another al-Qaeda attack in America, and rightfully so. Department of Justice, that was the priority, and I'm not criticizing that. Well, what I'm criticizing is that we took our eye off the ball and all this other stuff. We didn't participate with the communities and educating the kids and the students and the professors and the colleges. And we kind of let this thing go. And then the kids just started getting involved. And then the, you know, the whole opioid crisis with the big pharma and then the drug traffic is taking advantage. This thing is just like a runaway train. And now the current administration has inherited a mess and they're trying very hard to get out of this mess. But we have to be very aggressive. So one thing that could be done automatically, and I've already seen positive signs by the hiring of all these U.S. attorneys, 
we have some powerful federal laws in this country. Now we need to use them and we need to go after these executives in these companies that are willfully turning their eyes away from the diversion of these drugs, as an example. Right. And we can't have their buddies in Washington taking care of each other so they can get hired at these big law firms when they leave government. We have to have aggressive prosecution. So it sounds like the Department of Justice right now is shifting the way they feel about that. And only time will tell. I mean, they formed that Hezbollah task force, as an example, and that was a great first step. I know the prosecutor personally who's involved. And, you know, I'm happy to see that kind of stuff. But forming task forces is just the beginning. Now we want to see results and we want to hear about success stories and we want to see accountability on the leaders. But so, yeah, it's a it's a full court press that we need to put on and multiple agencies have to be involved and you have to have cooperative efforts and task force environments because no one agency is good enough to do this alone and that's kind of where we have failed daniel in the past because we're still fighting turf battles trying to you know get the budgets that are necessary to do your job because like all the agencies are short resources i mean just look at dea they're down like 1500 agents right you know homeland security they're scrambling to fight you know to to hire agents. So, so there's a lot of issues we could speak all day about it, but, it, you know, I feel very proud of the efforts that law enforcement has made over the years. But what's really sad is to see the attack on police that's going on and all the folks that are dying out there, they don't come home to their families. And that has my attention every day. No, for and sure. So the, public needs, you know, the public needs to realize that these, these are regular citizens trying to defend, you know, and, you know, keep our city safe. And then they come home, you know, they get the knock on the door at three in the morning from the sheriff saying, sorry, your husband passed away. Your father is no longer going to be home for you. And so anyway, so I'm very proud of what law enforcement has done and they've come a long way. But we got to keep fighting. That's it. But we need a more of a whole of government approach. And everyone says that, Daniel. But that's what's really missing right now. We have a lot of really smart people, dedicated public servants. But if you put them together, it'll be a way more powerful force. And they all want to stay. They all seem to want to do the right thing, but it's the leadership that has to pull them together. So that's what I was going to say with the leadership. Obviously, a lot of people on the right are very down on the FBI leadership. What's your assessment of DEA? Um, Are they confronted with with as much rot at the top as as the FBI has? Or, I mean, do you think they're in better shape? Well, I think the DEA is is in pretty good shape considering what they have and the resources that they have. I mean, I I pay attention to this every day. I was out this past week in Louisville, Kentucky. I was in Detroit the week before. And what I've learned is that the people on the front lines are extremely dedicated. They go out there every day and they want to fight bad guys. They want to put them in jail. They want to take the drugs away. The problem is, is the bureaucracy in the what I call the land of the make-believe, Washington, right? You have these people that come into these uh, jobs that start thinking that they're important. They start thinking that the only thing that matters is what they do in these headquarters environments. One of the big issues that I, my opinion, this is my opinion, Derek Maltz's opinion from all these years of looking at it, is the centralized control from Washington is a failure. You can't have an agency, whether it's FBI or whatever agency, thinking that these guys in suits at headquarters are going to dictate what goes on on the front lines, because they don't even have a clue, many of them. It's the people on the front lines and the special agents in charge and all these agencies that should have the autonomy actually to do what they're supposed to do, given the resources that they need. And also, by the way, uh, to also be given some direction on what the national priorities are. 
what the expectations are. So, like DEA, they have an acting uh, special agent in charge. I know him quite well. And, you know, he's doing the best that he can considering, you know, the deck of cards that he's been dealt with. But I got to tell you, I'm, I'm anxiously looking forward to the nomination for the DEA administrator because it all starts at the top. And as good as an acting administrator may be, yeah. you know, they're acting. You need a full-time, you know, Senate-confirmed, whoever that may be. You know, I, I'm, I'll be very happy to see uh, a nomination on the DEA and other agencies so, as well. I, I mean, I, I asked the Attorney General Sessions about this, and he, he told me um, very definitively that they, they submitted – a couple of recommendations, but now, you know, they don't control. It's up to the White House, and I don't see any signs of them doing that. And and, and I think I, I want to go back to well, w- one of the many well, points. Daniel, can I yeah. just, let me interrupt you on that only because of the, the nasty politics that go on behind the scenes. The public doesn't always hear it, but, mm, you know, so you have yeah, these dedicated important. people that raise their hand and they want to do it. They've been career, you know, diehard patriots, and then what happens is, the, you know, the Google now and the Internet allows you to find stuff from 1937 that oh. the guy did when he was in elementary school. And then all of a sudden he's eliminated from, yes. you know, being yes. in contention. And it, it's really sad because it's not relevant conduct. Right. It's something that happened 20, 30 years ago in some cases, maybe. Right. So I, I see that happening a lot. And then people get you know destroyed in the media. Their families get threatened. And it becomes like, why do I want to do this? I mean, they're not even going to pay me a lot of money. I want to do it. I want to help. But then, like, it's this political madness, right? So are people really concerned about public safety or are they concerned about their own pockets? So th- that's what you mentioned. You mentioned something about mixed signals and, and, and clear direction. And what I find funny is, so, you know, let's hear DH and you're like, oh, my God, this is the worst drug crisis in American history. All right, so this is a priority. But then what's amazing is is that at the same time, there's an effort to double down on the very DACA amnesty that brought in all of the drug mules and gave all the revenue to the cartels. It's number one. And then number two, on the crime side, there's this bipartisan, almost unanimous, I'm like the last man standing, me and Mark Levin, um, with with drug trafficking, that they want to let them all out of prison and they're like, what the heck? These nonviolent drug traffickers are just sitting there. And, or, or they'll call them possession, but it's really not. They're traffickers. Um, I mean, how do you feel when you see that you know, they're saying it's nonviolent? Let's just let them out. Let's get all, rid, of, rid of the mandatory minimums. We don't need this anymore. It's costing too much money. Um, and then I want to get into the terrorism cooked in with the drugs and the Zarnayev brothers as well. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me just say it. Let me sum it up like this. The best way I can explain that with a very short answer is leaders are supposed to eliminate confusion, not create it. And right now, some of our leadership in Washington has created confusion. On one hand, we say marijuana is a controlled substance, you know, you know highly addictive, whatever they say about marijuana. Uh, you know, it's a controlled one, but then we want to legalize it and we're smoking marijuana on the streets, crossing line. I mean, it's like, really, like, wake up and make make a, a, you know, a decision, a leadership decision. What do you want to do? Right. And so, like, the same thing goes for everything that you just talked about. Right. Sanctuary cities. You know, our youth are going, wait a second. I thought illegal aliens were bad, Dad. Why are they letting them in these countries and why are they not telling the federal police? Poor Tom Holman, that guy. What a patriot he is. And now he's leaving the government, and I don't blame him. 
He's leaving because he's trying to keep America safe, and he's getting verbally destroyed by the media and everything. Meanwhile, yeah. the guy's working his butt off to keep these these savages out of our country. Now, it, I can wow. tell you this. Yeah, yeah. So this guy is, is, is retiring, and I'd like to see who they're going to bring in there to fill that spot. And this is all part of their plan. If they make it so difficult for the leader, yeah. then it'll be harder to get a successful, experienced leader the next time. Yeah, and you get and some really some sort of an too. empty empty suit. And yeah, I'd love to have Homan on the show at some point. That would that would be great. He's I, a great guy. I, I was love really watching the guy speak. You know me; I'm a tough grader. I mean, I I think most people in Washington suck, especially from a conservative perspective. I was really surprised. I didn't know him before, you know, before he became acting director. I didn't know him, you know, when he was there during the Obama administration. I assumed everyone there was bad, and I was shocked at the human side of him. How he really cares. And, and, and well, he put his career aside. He he told the company that he got a big offer from. Hey, uh, hold on, I'm going to continue helping the government. I'm going to be the acting ice director. And he stayed in the seat, and he worked his butt off, and he and he just gets nothing but aggravation and abuse every day. So yeah. I don't get that. No, I, I mean, and that's I, the thing. I, I, and, I don't get that. And again, with the with the misdirection, mixed signals, you know, it's it's the same thing. It, you know. I feel like I'm living in a twilight twilight zone where both parties, organizations funded by both Soros and the Cokes, you know that's the GOP's Coke addiction. There, uh, that's their opioid crisis, which is not even opioid, a drug crisis. Um, and when it comes to crime, there's no balance. It is all exclusively, and you know, with a country of 325 million, you're going to have stories of people wrongly convicted. You're going to have stories of people that were oversentenced. You're going to have stories of um, people that repented in jail. You're going to have stories of cops that made a mistake or dirty cops. You know, a, just today in Baltimore, um, some cops were, were sentenced from being involved in a drug ring. You have dirty doctors. I mean, you have bad examples, but they're focused in a vacuum. You know, this zero-sum context with zero-sum game of sympathy for convicts, and there's no understanding of the other side of the ledger, the amount of criminals that are – the crimes that are going unsolved, the top violent level, on the immigration level, same thing. On the one hand, you want to keep the country safe, but they're saying, dreamers, 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 don't you dare deport. Don't you dare deport. This is a priority. Well, so you're like – that's very interesting the way you're doing it. I'm, I'm, I follow it from a political standpoint. You're po- following it from a public servant standpoint. I work for ICE. I work for DA. And look, the laws say this. I'll enforce the laws. And now you're saying, bigot. How dare you? Laws suck. Well, right. what, exactly. what do you want me- Well, so, Daniel, let me just tell you, because I know we're getting to the end. I want to go over something that's really, really troubling that American public needs to be aware of. So, you know, like. We've seen an evolving crisis with these terror financing schemes, and one of the schemes I've been following is the money's going back to Yemen from these uh, different store owners around America that are involved in many different types of crimes. And they would maybe consider smaller crimes, but when you accumulate all these criminal activities together, it's multi-millions of dollars going back right to Yemen to support radical terrorism. So as an example, you know, you go into one of these supermarkets, you know, bodegas, convenience store, whatever you call it, they're selling the little K2 and Spice. And by the way, K2 and Spice, if you've been following the news, people are bleeding from the eyes and dying and having overdoses because of this rat poison that they've put in it. Okay. Then you go and you have a a welfare card for a hundred bucks and you go to the store owner who's from Yemen and you say, here's my hundred dollar card. He gives you $50 cash. He takes the hundred dollar card, buys 
goods at Costco for $100, so he just doubled his money. Then he's selling illegal cigarettes that weren't, and he's not paying taxes out the back door. He's selling drug paraphernalia, counterfeit goods, and all of this stuff is being accumulated and then sent back to Yemen to support this radical movement. And then we sit there, and our law enforcement's afraid to go investigate this stuff because, God forbid, you, you accuse this store owner of being involved with this activity because he's Middle Eastern, and then you're going to get sued. No, it has nothing to do with he's Middle Eastern. It has to do with the criminal activity and the monies that are going back to his country that's really a breeding ground for this jihadist radical movement around the world. Now, this is where it gets really stupid, Daniel, okay? Now, you talk about mixed messages. On one hand, all our leadership in the country says that terrorists are increasingly turning to crime and criminal networks for funding, but yet our system to go after this is still broken with walls up 17 years after 9-11. So what do I mean? Your terrorism investigators and your intelligence community that are doing terrorism, they operate in a cocoon. They don't share the information because of a lot of reasons, not because they don't want to share, because it's not set up to share because of classification and all kinds of stuff and wow. legal reasons or whatever. And then the guys working the streets that are seeing all these monies flowing back, there's a disconnect. The intelligence isn't flowing two ways. So you need to break down those walls and you need to have a more task force environment. Like, yeah, we have these JTTFs that are very, very good in a lot of ways, but where, where they're not so good is like, look at the Boston bombing. You had the information on the brothers and specifically Tamlin that he was going to do this radical activity in, in the U.S. maybe. I can't tell you what it said exactly because no one shared it with me. All right. But I could tell you that that after the bomb went off, my office had significant intelligence that could have been investigated in early 2011, two years before the bombing. But we never got a chance to give it to the FBI JTF because they never asked. Now, you want to talk about how that really gets ridiculous? They formed a unit at my operation in 2002 to address this exactly thing. And it was the FBI director, the attorney general, and the DEA administrator that said we need a specialized unit at SOD because of the dangerous mix between drugs and terrorism. And it was represented by FBI counterterrorism personnel. But then they still don't give us the information to share because they determined there was no terrorist activity on Tamil. But they didn't dig deeper to find out what else was this guy involved in on the criminal side. So these terrorists are criminals first. Tamlin and his crew were involved with marijuana and drug trafficking. As a matter of fact, the triple homicide in Waltham, Massachusetts, one of the guys that was completely uh, you know, mutilated on the floor in the apartment was a subject of a DEA Homeland Security investigation in Boston for distribu distribution of major marijuana. So there's these disconnects all over, and leadership stands there, and they're not addressing it. So when is this going to be addressed, Daniel? Wow. That's what I would want to ask Mr. Sessions. Like, I like what he's saying. I like his points on, you know, organized crime and, and sentencing and stuff like that. But I don't know if he's getting the information from his people, because people in this beltway try to protect each other in that sense. And they need these critical things so they can further, uh, you know, make better systems. Like, how many more Inspector General reports or information sharing reviews do we need? <laughs> how many millions did we spend on the 9-11 Commission report? And the same stuff that they identified in 9-11 is still going on today. How do I know that? Because I lived it every day, Daniel.
This is firsthand information. It's not me making something up or reading it in a newspaper. So so you're saying that because bad actors, whether they're big transnational crime syndicates or, you know, or terrorist organizations, they need money. So in order to find it. Absolutely. It's 101. Yeah. So in order to do that. Think about it. Okay. Training, logistics, you know, travel, uh, corruption, uh, weapons, explosives. They need cash. Right. And they're not getting the state sponsorship they used to get before 9-11. They're not getting the same charitable organizations because they all know that U.S. government is investigating this stuff. So it's just easier to get involved in crime. So if you busted up these networks on the drug side. You'll all, you know, everyone thinks that they think of some schlepper, you know, getting involved in drugs on the streets. But what you're saying in many of these cases, that's how you uncover something much bigger than just, hey, there's a a pot of heroin there. That's why I get so frustrated. You hear these people, they think the DEA is investigating marijuana users and they think the DEA is wasting time on putting low level uh, users in jail. No, the DEA is globally looking at transnational crime networks, working with law enforcement counterparts around the world. We have an informant network that is unbelievable that infiltrate these organizations and they provide critical information and then we investigate. When we do these investigations, we uncover these trade-based money laundering schemes that I'm talking to you about. And we have this intelligence, but then when we share it, there's other people that don't want to believe it because they didn't come up with it, right? So somebody, let's say in the intel community says, oh, DEA is making that stuff up. Making that stuff up. The guy was convicted in court for this activity. We're not making it up. You just didn't see it in your computer. You got to get out behind your computer to see this stuff. You got to work on the real streets and of, of the world with informants that are infiltrating these criminal groups. Then you'll see what's going on. You can't see everything in a computer from intelligence reports, right? So you have to merge these unbelievable public servants in the intel community and the and the FBI and HSI and CBP and marshals. you got to merge them together. And we have systems set up like this, like SOD, for example. But we don't want to, like, combine our, you know, good government agents together because we're all still fighting these turf battles. Enough is enough with the turf battles, and let's start making America safer. That's you know, what the public expects. You know, I want to go back to the Yemeni-owned gas stations in this country. So I saw that report out of Chicago a couple um, months ago, I think in the beginning of April, about four Yemeni nationals were indicted um, because they were selling, I guess, again, this K2 spice and rat poison, and dozens of people bled out, and maybe five or six people were killed. Um and you're, I just want to go back to what you were seeing because, you know, what I see on the immigration side is that we didn't have really, we we really didn't have Yemeni immigration in this country um, until, ironically, after nine eleven. Since nine eleven, right. why, why would it? Yeah, we brought in about fifty thousand, fifty thousand over the last seventeen years or so. Um, when did you start seeing this problem? Okay, so where I where it came to my attention, and this is another sad story I'm going to tell you right now. It came to my attention in like 2011 on the K2 issues that were going on all over America. I had no idea who was involved with it. I knew the K2 chemicals were coming from China and then being sent into America and put on the lease and then chopped up and put into these little 
you know, these little packaging, Scooby-Doo and all this stuff, you know, to attract our youth to use this stuff. But I didn't know the money side of this thing until we did this major project synergy in 2014. And we took down cells all over the southeast, specifically Alabama. And we saw all these young kids sending millions of dollars back to Yemen from their business selling K2. Then we started looking at these bodegas. And then I uncovered something that really is disturbing to me, Daniel, and probably to your public audience. Peter King's Homeland Security Committee wrote a 2007 tobacco and terror report. Yep, I've, how re- I've read it. Tobacco was being sent, the proceeds were being sent to Hamas, Hezbollah, and different terror groups. And then I started doing my own little research and realized that it's, it's all of this stuff. It's not just synthetic drugs. It's anything that's generating large amounts of cash, and then they commingle it in their legitimate businesses, and then they send it back to support the global, uh, you know, terror campaign. So as an example, I can tell you that, like, for an example, we followed a guy one time uh, delivering a suitcase of cash to a, you know, a, a marshal from another country, a Middle Eastern country, He's delivering cash at an airport to bring back the cash to the Middle East. We saw hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, at airports from seizures going back to these countries. And not to mention the banks who worked very hard to identify through significant activity reports. They saw all these accounts of these businesses. And what they're doing is depositing cash in these businesses and doing ATM withdrawals in Yemen. And it's very difficult for the U.S. law enforcement to get intelligence on what's going on in Yemen. But this is going on every day. Then you arrest guys and you find martyrdom videos on their phones showing like people blowing themselves up and this global fight against the West. And you start scratching your head going, what is going on? In, and like I said, in the land that I make believe, because that's what the Beltway is, in my opinion, Dan. Wow. Anyway, we're, we're about running out of time. Um, your connection's kind of waning on us, and, and we got to go anyway. But this was really informative, like an intelligence brief. I would love to have you back again. And, and for listeners, email me, tweet me at Conservative. Let me know what you want me to ask Derek in the future. We're going to stay on this beat. It all comes together. It's immigration policies, both legal and illegal, um, that is is really at the head of so much of the drug problem in and of itself, but also the drug problem related to terror financing. There's a lot of people just as evil who are American citizens, but the point is this is so redressable because we don't have to let these people in the country. To the extent we did, we could throw them out and easily deport them without the lengthy process of landing a conviction. Um, so much going on, so much good advice. Um, Derek, would you come back again? Oh, yeah, I'll come back anytime because, like, let me make something really clear to your listeners. My only motive is to help this country and the communities, and I don't want to have other people bury their loved ones like I buried my brother, and I want to try to do whatever I can. I don't have a political agenda. I'm just just stating the facts. I was lucky to be in that, uh, that seat of the Special Operations Division for almost 10 years, and I had a unique perspective because I interacted with a lot of uh, patriots, and I know what they're doing. And by the way, one last thing I want to say. The sad part, from my opinion, is that you're supposed to work smarter, not harder, right? Well, if some leadership stepped in and started mandating what 
these unbelievably hardworking government servants to do, and they come together instead of causing the battles between one another, right? Because the intel community, the FBI, all these agencies, they work so damn hard every day with limited staffing, and I'd like you to see them come together and just work smart. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do is get the messaging out. This is not an attack on anybody or any specific agency. It's a, it's basically an attack on our antiquated systems and our laws. Exactly, exactly. I mean, as a, as a fiscal conservative, I believe most problems are not money problems. They're policy problems. And if you actually uh, took the political correctness out, had a, had a very clear and consistent mission um, without mixed signals and you coordinated – uh, you know, this shouldn't be too hard. I don't think we need to spend a hundred years in Afghanistan and trillions of dollars um, when it's not even the problem anyway. We could go after just not self-immolating with immigration and terror financing on our own soil. That hey, fo- Daniel, sure. hey, Daniel, can I just say one one last thing? Only because I forgot, and it's really important. You know, in the Afghan War, you know, one one of the things we learned in going after the tribal kingpins is that they thought it was kind of like a global jihad to sell heroin to the West because they felt that. Not only could they make multi hundreds of millions of dollars by selling the drug, they could destroy the West and the families and the kids and everything like that. Well, that's what I see going on with the synthetic drugs, as an example. They're making gazillions of dollars. They're funding their terrorist agendas, but they're destroying our families. We had one case uh, in the DEA where we actually had somebody say, we don't need anthrax. We have spice. Wow. Okay. So the significance of that is, to me, very disturbing because people are missing out on the fact that even if somebody doesn't just die from the uh, abuse of spice, it's destroyed the whole family and the, and the communities. So it's it's way deeper than yeah. what people talk about. And again, I think your point is it's not just your grandparents' uh, marijuana from the 60s. It's the fact that all of this stuff is now being laced, meaning it's poisonous enough to begin with, but the poison is being laced with poison. So this is with the carfentanil, the analogs of fentanyl. This is really a, – it's a national security WMD issue that's all related exactly. to, to international terror finance, to criminal aliens. Exactly. And it's, it's so redressable. It's not inherent. In other words, you might say a certain degree of cultural rot, unfortunately, is inherent in our culture, and you're not going to get rid of it. But the the poisoning and the lacing is not inherent. That is an orchestrated uh, thing. And I think what you're describing from Afghanistan is they're taking a page out of Karl Marx, or I think it was Vladimir Lenin, actually, to uh, kill the capitalist, um, hang them on their own rope that they pay for. And that's what they're right. doing. Just, uh, the drug problem is not a national health crisis. It's a national security crisis and it's not just drugs it's all this other criminal activity like counterfeit and human smuggling and everything we talked about Daniel. that that sums it up very well it is not you know really a healthcare crisis it is a national security crisis folks that was derek maltz uh da veteran head of da special operations division really glad to have him on and and i'm sure you guys have felt after this pretty uh Pretty unsafe, and therefore, if you can't count on government to save you, you need to carry a firearm, especially if you're not in my state of Maryland. Carry a firearm, and what are you going to carry a firearm in? you got to have a secure and comfortable, custom-made We The People holsters. We The People holsters. Go to wethepeopleholsters.com forward slash conservative. We'll put it up on show notes. Special, exclusive to the conservative conscience. These are really good patriots that take pride in their custom-made holsters, all made in the USA, by the way. Lots of 3D 
d- designs on the on the um, molds as well. Inside the waistband, outside the waistband. I have my outside the waistband I use for draw shooting at the range, um, but you certainly want an inside the waistband one for your right to carry, which hopefully you have it. I don't have it here in Maryland. So that is We the People Holsters, the most quality patriotic holsters in America. Thank you for joining us. We'll have a lot more on this and, and more next week. Take care. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 